precious to hear the fellowship this morning as we come into the Lord's house. Joyful to see one another. Joyful to experience a little bit of what, again, feels like San Diego weather. And to be together in the, in the house of the Lord. Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy and the freedom there is in coming together as your body. We thank you, Lord God, for what you have done on our behalf, redeeming us, purchasing us to be your treasured possession. Lord God, we thank you that you have made us your people, and as such, we desire to honor you. God, may there be um, true worship in our midst this morning. May the things that we think about, the things that we read, the things that we pray, the things that we sing, all be a fragrant offering to you. That is our desire. And out of that, Lord God, may we be a people who are desirous to, to bring others to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. May that be our singular desire this morning as we come before you. Open our hearts to um, understand your word, to examine it, and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are on week seven of six in the book of Malachi. We're in, we're in overtime. <laughs> going for eight. Uh, there's so much in this precious book of Malachi. We have seen God bringing charges against his unfaithful covenant people and time after time showing his covenant faithfulness. We have seen God addressing the idolatry and the adultery and the, the stinginess of his people in so many ways. And, and last week we saw um, a charge that will carry over into the text that we see today, and, and that charge is, is really God's people claiming that he's unfair, claiming that he's unjust, that they've been fired without grounds, that they've been divorced without cause. And so God is responding to his people, and, and out of that, we get a, his rebuttal today, and his rebuttal, for me, is one of the high points of the book of Malachi. I have grand plans on how many verses we might get through today, but if we make it through three, I can assure you that what we'll see is one of the most joy-filled portions of the entire study of Malachi that we've seen. Not that we don't love being convicted and compelled of our sin, but we also love to rejoice in that in which we hope, and that is salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to recap from uh, last week, starting at verse 13 of chapter 3, and we're going to read through verse 18 and see how we do this morning. Malachi 3.13, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day when I, take up my treasure, when I make up my treasure possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. We see verses 13 and 14 as, as heavy messages where God's people are saying, what is the point of us serving him? They make the claim that everything else going around them is seeing the, 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 
wicked prospering. Jeremiah said it so succinctly. Why do the wicked prosper? And God's answer to them is going back, and what we'll see in the text today, God's answer is going back to them and reminding him, them of his covenant love for them. As humans, we have this tendency to constantly be comparing ourselves with others. And that's why the book of Malachi starts out with that comparison, putting it in perspective for us. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. The distinction that God wants us to make is between not us and others, but between us and what should have been of us. Isaiah chapter 1. If it were not for his great love, we would have been like Sodom or Gomorrah. We must be careful with whom we compare ourselves, with whom we compare. Verse 16 is where we'll start today's examination of God's great and precious promises. The beginning of this chapter, um, we talked a little bit about how God was zeroing in on talking to the priests. And then he widens his scope and he talks about the sons of Jacob and he's talking to all of Israel. And all of Israel has this concern with what's going on with everybody else. The Edomites are starting to reassemble in the little province, the county south of Judah, if you will. The neighboring nations are coming back out of their captivity and beginning to prosper in ways that the Judah fears just a bit. And so the people of Israel are concerned and looking around them. But within this group of larger Israel, there's again a subset. We see this idea of a subset, of a remnant, constantly throughout God's redemptive history. Verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. What an amazing picture to just see this, this group of people who are described as being fearers of Yahweh. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There's so much in this verse. This is, this is lengthy study that we could do to understand what's going on. First of all, what we see here is the word fear. Now, we're at the tail end of the Old Testament. The people of Israel in the time of Malachi are, are concerned. They've come back out of captivity, but the re rebuilding plans aren't going as they had expected. They're not seeing the, the prosperity that they had longed for, and they're concerned. They, they have a, a wall that's been rebuilt, but they don't have a military strength. At best, they could maybe describe a little militia, right? They, they don't have an army, hence the Lord of hosts. They find themselves heavily taxed by the Persians, they find themselves in, in dire straits, and there's, there's much to fear for them. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. What is, what is this idea of fear? So throughout the Old Testament, fear is associated with honor, or fear is associated with obedience. But fear is a hard thing for us to articulate. So I want to think about that for just a moment. Here's my hypothesis. That which we fear rules us. If we fear retiring in poverty, we are ruled by a desire to check our brokerage account. If we're in fear of losing our job, we'll work an unhealthy amount of hours to keep the man happy. If we're afraid of being out of shape, we'll start our morning with kale shakes and long runs. <laughs> right? What we fear rules us. And so if that is true, those 
who feared the Lord are ruled by whom? By the Lord. I thought I was done preparing my sermon notes this morning and then being in Pastor John's office, I had to add one more note. He has a plaque on his wall, a quote from Spurgeon that says, he who fears God has nothing else to fear. He who fears God has nothing else to fear. And so what we see here is this this group of uh, a subset of Israel are recognizing that with everything going on, with all of these grievances that could be had, the thing that ought to have concerned them the most was this fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so they spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. How precious is that? The the conversations of the saints, the conversations of those who fear the Lord are heard by him. That same chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, that I mentioned a moment ago, God describes as having his ears covered, his eyes covered. Their prayers are cut off. Their prayers are not listened to. But in contrast, in this text, we see that their prayers are being heard. Because of the right understanding of the Lord, their prayers are heard. Now, just as fear being what rules us, that same fear can be described as what we trust in for our salvation. Going back to our our fear of poverty, what are we trusting for our salvation in that case? Wealth, right? But if our, our fear is of the Lord, what is our salvation? Of the Lord. I love this this saying. We are saved from God, we are saved by God, and we are saved for God. Our fear, if it is of the Lord, means that our salvation is also of the Lord. Amen? Right? So here we see this group of people that are, ca- that are properly getting this. They're not afraid of the nations. They're not afraid of the idolaters. They're not afraid of anything other than the Lord. That motivates them. And so they spoke to one another, and the Lord hears this. And then what they do is really interesting. And it says, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. This idea of a book of remembrance is really interesting, and it's rooted very much in culture. The people of Israel, while there are exceptions to this, were primarily a group of people who relied on oral tradition. The things that they would say would be sung to their children, sung to their grandchildren. They would be memorized. They would be spoken um, in an oral form. But one of the interesting blessings that came out of their time in Babylonian captivity is that they learned from the Babylonians. In fact, some of their young men were made to be eunuchs and scribes and writing down things for the Babylonians. The Babylonians were kept impeccable historical records. They kept libraries. In fact, the Babylonians uh, taught that to the Persians. We see in the book of Esther that the king um, had a, a book of all the things that had been done to favor the king. And so we see this writing down of, of information. In fact, it's believed that very likely the books of Chronicles and Kings were not written down until after the people of Israel learned this from the Babylonians and came back out of exile. So the people of Israel had sort of captured this idea of writing things down. Why do we write things down? We write things down so that we'll have a, a record that stands the test of time. And so these names are written down And God honors that. He says, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Folks, this little nugget in the the tail end of the book of Malachi is signaling again the closure of the old covenants. 
in the advent of the new covenant. The advent of the new covenant is those who fear the Lord and put their trust in him for salvation, trust in Christ. And are our names written down? In a book that will stand the test of time? Praise God, they are. Let's look at a couple of texts together, the first of which we'll find in the book of Philippians. We, we find the Apostle Paul closing out his letter to the Philippians. And uh, I, I think what he's writing down here might be in part to cover up the fact that he doesn't remember all of the names of his brothers and sisters in the church. But nonetheless, it's a great text. Here's what it says, Philippians 4, verse 3. It says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In the Honduran church, we greet people as brother or sister because we often forget their names, right? So Paul might have been doing that here. He's like, the rest of the people uh, can't remember their names. But what he does tell us is their names are recorded in the book of life. Far more important than Paul recalling their names is the fact that Christ will recall their names, Perhaps some of the most impressive mentions of this, this being written down in, in, a, in a, lasting, uh, a lasting book in a re- written form, we find in the book of Revelation. Let's look at a couple of those together. The first we'll find in Revelation 3, 4, as Christ addresses the church at Sardis. Or read 4 through 6. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The name will never be blotted out, never be erased, never be removed. Brothers, this, ancestors, this text talks about the perseverance of the saints. This is a, a list of, of people, a, a subset of the whole that have feared the Lord, their names were written down, and God honors that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Starting at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We don't know what the other books are called. It might be called the Kindle Fire. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was found and not found, written in the book of, the life, book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The deeds of the righteous and the wicked are written down in books, according to this text. And based on the content of those books, how we're judged. But guess what? All the volumes of the things that we've done to offend God, to sin against God, are dismissed 
if our hope for salvation is found in Christ alone and our names are written in his book of life. What a heavy, beautiful, and joyful truth that is. All the books of the things that we could have done wrong, cast aside, because our name is written there. Never to be blot out. Again in Revelation, chapter 21, starting at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That book of remembrance, brothers and sisters, is the one that has been written by the Lamb, that can only be opened by the Lamb, and that offers us that eternal promise in which we hope. Malachi is pointing to that. He's telling us about this new covenant, and he's, and he's pointing to us towards this, the perseverance of the saints and the assurance of salvation through Christ Jesus. That's joy. Back to Malachi. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Of these whose names are written, this is what the Lord says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. They will be mine. We see the Lord saying that numerous times throughout the Old Testament, always pointing ahead towards the cross. We see in the book of Hosea, those who are not a people, I will call my people. And we see it again that this, this small faithful few, this group that fears the Lord, they speak to one another. God says, of these, they will be mine. See this last portion of Malachi this week and next is the already and the not yet. When Malachi wrote these words, this was the not yet, but now it's the already. Praise God, we are the new covenant believers. And when this text says, they shall be mine, we shall be his. We are his. That's done. Our names are written there. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I take up my treasured possession. The treasured possession we see in the new covenant, Paul explains that for us, and we see it in a couple of different occasions. First, let's go to the book of Titus. I'll start at verse 11 of chapter 2. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession." who are zealous for good works. That text is, is remarkable because it talks about the 
the waiting, right? It says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. That is waiting for the second coming. What we see in the Malachi text, they're looking forward to the new covenant during which, at which time, through Christ, Christ will say, I have made for myself a new people. And now Paul declares, that new people, that's done. But you're still waiting, you're still fearing, and your salvation is still yet to be completely consummated at Christ's return. Who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The other text, I know most of the ladies who are doing the study will know where we're going on this one already. 1 Peter chapter 2, a verse we've looked at in previous weeks and is worth looking at again and again and again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we looked at the text previously, seeing how it has defined our identity as a new covenant priesthood. But going beyond that, we see again our identity in Christ as being part of his treasured possession. The word treasured is an interesting one. Of all of God's creation, mankind is singular in how God has looked upon us. Mankind is singular in his desire to have a relationship with us. All of redemptive history is about restoring that relationship with us. That's what God wants. That's what brings him glory. He didn't want to kick us out of Eden. He wanted us to be brought to himself as his people, as his treasured possession. And here it's done through Christ Jesus. His treasured possession. Verse 3.18 Actually, in 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day that I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son. On the slide, we have our cross references that we looked at, and this is our cross reference. Anne got it. Thank you, Anne. Our cross reference, right? We are, as we look at the Old Testament, looking for an proper understanding of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. What we have here is, is an interesting choice of words that Malachi t- uses. God says, I will spare them as a man spares his son. Now, for an Old Covenant believer, what would likely come to mind is Abraham taking his son Isaac for a hike. God demands of Abraham a sacrifice. And Abraham, with pain that a father could only imagine, prepares to take the life of his son. And at the last moment, God provides a ram. God provides an adequate sacrifice. And Abraham spares his son. God desires to spare his people and will go to such lengths to spare his people that he did not spare his son. 
What, a, what an interesting choice of words. What an interesting analogy. How amazing, how profound. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We could go on from there, but what we see here again is this idea of the perseverance of the saints. Because God did not spare his own son, our salvation is assured. Nothing can remove our, our name from that book of life. Nothing can separate us from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Could we have a clearer connection between Malachi and the Messiah? I don't think so. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. That's a great love. That's the love that he has for us. Verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now this is an interesting statement. Again, these believers, or these God-fears, these Yahweh-fears, in the midst of their rebuilt nation, in, a, in a midst of their tumultuous times, in the midst of comparing themselves with the prosperity of the wicked, want justice. So God makes this statement. You'll see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And he says once more, which is kind of curious. When have we ever seen a distinction between the righteous and the wicked? The one example that comes to mind for me is that of Abraham and Lot, right? Abraham makes the appeal. If there's a certain number of people, like, let's just go spare the city, right? And finally, God works this out, and he lets Lot go. And so you could maybe draw the conclusion that Lot's righteous, right? And then you get to the next chapter, and you figure out Lot's not quite so righteous, right? We have the encounter with Lot and his daughters and his drunkenness and that text that no preacher ever wants to preach. The righteous and the wicked. Have we ever really seen that? What does Jeremiah say? The heart is wicked. There is none righteous. Which begs the question, to what is the Lord pointing us? Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So this whole idea of righteousness is one that we really have to understand. Deuteronomy 9.5 says that uh, as the people are, are hearing of the promise of the promised land, they're going into the promised land the first time, God says, look, it's not because of your righteousness that you're going to possess this land but rather because of the wickedness of everybody around them and me wanting to show my faithfulness, you're going to possess the land, but it's not because of your righteousness. Hebrews 1.9. Go there with me. This is the, the opening of the, the book of Hebrews. And we're beginning to see what is an incredible examination of the supremacy of Christ. And what we see in these, in these opening phrases is how Christ is fulfilling these old covenant promises. Specifically, 
verse 9, start of verse 8 rather. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a quote from Psalm 45, 7. But the, the idea here is, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Of what human being could that really ever truly be said in its entirety? None. You can find men like David who are described as a man after God's own heart. Could we say 100% of time in David's life that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness? <clears throat> no. Could we say of Moses, who was an intercessor between God and his people, who is described as a righteous man, could we say that he was a, one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness in every instance of his life? No. And if we're honest with ourselves, folks, do we love righteousness and hate evil? 100% of the time? In our flesh, we choose wickedness much more than we choose righteousness. So what's Malachi talking about? I think Paul explains that for us. Philippians chapter 3. Flip the Philippians. Righteousness through faith in Christ is the caption of, of this chapter. In verse 9 it says, And be found in him having a righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may obtain resurrection from the dead. Whose righteousness? The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The distinction that's being made between the righteous and the wicked is that that's being made by observing Christ in, purchase, in perfect righteousness. The perfectly qualified priest, remember the sons of Aaron, the, the Levites? They've blown it. They've failed to honor his name, so we need a more perfect priest. The sacrifice is a sheep with one leg shorter than the other, a blemished lamb. So we need a more perfect sacrifice, so he sends Christ. We need to be able to properly distinguish between righteousness and wickedness. So he sends us the one and only, his own son, the only one who has ever perfectly loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The fulfillment of all of these verses we find in Christ. That's joyful. That's joyful. We're going to move ahead two more verses in Malachi. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we'll look at it just briefly and probably touch on it again next week because we want to stay joyful. This verse 1, you know, if it doesn't make us happy, we have to skip over it. That's how we preach here, right? <laughs> just kidding. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the son of for, for those for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So verse one 
doesn't sound like a cause of excitement or joy for this group of people, but what they're longing for is God's justice. What they're longing for is God to make all things right. And so God talks about the day of the Lord, and we'll talk about that again next week. He talks about this day coming where they'll be consumed. Brothers and sisters, we ought not look forward to that. The destruction of the wicked is no opportunity for them to repent. Seek the Lord while he may be found. But as we know from 2 Peter, that day is coming and the earth and everything in it will be destroyed by fire. How then should we live? We should live warning passionately the unbeliever to repent. Yet there is something inside of all of us that longs for that justice. And God promises that justice is coming. Brother Ty has uh, given me some homework to, to begin reading through the, the Apostles' Creed and meditating on it, and it's joyful. And one of the lines that intrigues me the most in there is this, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. We saw that in the same passage in, in Revelation there. That judgment will come. But he's relenting and he's holding back because he doesn't want anyone to be consumed. Verse 2 of Malachi 4 says, But for those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall come with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now this is a really interesting verse um, as far as context goes. If you could advance one slide for me. Try not to get distracted by the images here. But uh, it's important for you to know this is a, a sponsored announcement this morning. Um, <laughs> brought to you by Mazda. So... The reason that's in here, actually, is because in the time of, of Malachi, we have all of this going on where the Persians are sending people back out to their own countries. The decree of Cyrus and people are going back to their homelands. And we have a society that's full of pluralism. And so while the Persians were, by nature, coming out of Neo-Babylon, polytheists, they decided that to sort of earn some favor with their monotheists, they would promote one god to being superior. And the one god that they sort of promoted was um, Ahura Mazda. And that god was depicted by a, a disc or a sun with wings coming out. And that was meant to be a bit of a god that would sort of unify everybody, right? Everybody's going back to their country, everybody's going back and they're paying taxes to Persia and Persia is supposed to be the benevolent ruler, right? So the imagery that the people in the time of Malachi would have understood was that God's, in a sense, taking a stab at the old boyfriend, so to speak, right? He's saying, look, but for those of you who fear my name, I will, the true God, right? The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Curiously, the, uh, that God with the healing in its wings, Mazda, is where we get the car manufacturer brand. And the image is just like what we see described here. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You go back to the slide before with the verse. God is making a claim here that he is the only God, that he is going to be the God that delivers them and we see this fulfilled in a couple of interesting ways. In Luke chapter 1, towards the tail end of Zechariah's prayer, we see this referenced. 
Zechariah is, is talking about and singing about his own son and how he's a forerunner for the Messiah. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The sunrise shall visit us on high. Luke connects, Zechariah connects, the Holy Spirit connects all of what is said of Christ back to the prophets. Here we see this very obscure term. We only find this idea of sunrise a couple of times in terms of God's attributes in Scripture. We see it in Isaiah, we see it here in Malachi, and we see it as Christ fulfills it through Zechariah's explanation. The sun rising, it's healing, it's light, it's a message of salvation to the Gentiles and to all of mankind. And what does that produce? You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So, preparing the message, there's always options of you come across something that you don't understand, you can always ask the internet. In this particular case, I chose to speak with uh, my good friend and bovine expert, uh, Christian Jensen, and ask him what a calf leaping from a stall was like. And he says, the animal will click its heels together in a bit of giddiness. He said, giddy is the best word I can describe it. A calf desiring to leap from its stall and go out to pasture. Nothing can contain it. Nothing can contain it. I said, is it, is it anything like a, you know, a puppy that's waiting to go outside? He's like, it's nothing like that. Everything in the being of this calf is excited to go out. The picture of that, brothers and sisters, is what the understanding of the promises, the already and the not yet, ought to produce in us. The term Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. What we saw together in verses 16 through 18, we have fulfilled through Christ. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our salvation is assured. We have become his treasured possession. But what we see in verses 4, 1, and on are the not yet. So as we're waiting for the not yet, calves getting ready to leap, getting ready to come out of the stall with a joy that is all-consuming, a giddy joy, an anticipation May that be produced in us because of what Christ has done for us. May we long for his justice, but may we rejoice in his presence. May we fear him because our salvation is in him. Saved from him, by him, and for him. Father God, we rejoice because of what you have done for us. Long ago, you promised it. You pieced together imperfect messengers, imperfect prophets to piece together for us the perfect redemption, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect savior. And because of that, we're redeemed and we are a united people, Lord God. We thank you and we praise you for that. We praise you that the work of the cross has already been done, but yet you and your desire to save more 
to work through us, to glorify yourself, Lord God, to give sinners a chance to repent, you are tarrying. May we take advantage of that, Lord God, and speak of your praises at every opportunity. May we leap like a calf from a stall. May we have such joy knowing what you have done on our behalf that we would, by very nature, communicate that to others around us. May that invade every corner of our lives, Lord God, and affect how we live as families and as individuals and as a church, Lord God. We ask that we would constantly be reminded that our righteousness is not from ourselves, but from you. May we not compare ourselves with others. May we only compare ourselves with the wretches that we once were. May we only compare ourselves with what would have been of us if not for your son, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. In his name we pray, amen.